HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in Jamaica. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program to my co-guests. My guest today is Blake Richardson, who is the president and owner of Motoi in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Motoi opened as a sake brewery and brew pub in 2008. There are around 20 craft sake breweries in the U.S. now, but when Blake started Motoi, there is not much information available about Japanese sake in English, not to mention other craft breweries to learn from. And Blake also runs a sake rice milling company called the Minnesota Rice and Milling, which is important for American sake breweries, considering the difficulties in getting premium sake rice in the U.S. So today we'll discuss why Blake decided to open a sake brewery in Minneapolis, how he studied sake production, his sake making philosophy, why he started sake rice milling business, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Blake Richardson. Hello, Blake. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, as I know, you've been making sake. It's a seasonal. So, how's this year's brewing going? Uh, very good. Uh, we actually got a bit of a late start, uh, but uh, the brewing season's been great. Uh, we actually uh, finished our 
last batch of koji for the year yesterday. And so now it's just fermentation and pressing and, uh, and we'll be done. Oh, wow. But it went well, yes. Great. All right. So, uh, so first, uh, for listeners who haven't have met you, so what, uh, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? I am from South Dakota. I grew up there uh, prior to moving to Minneapolis for university. Um, and I grew up with the South Dakota staples of green bean casserole, goulash, pot roast, potatoes, corn, um, all the foods that you won't find at Disneyland. Mm, <laughs> sounds amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and I heard that you got into beer brewing first before you went into the sake business. And you opened a brew pub called uh, the Hakimai, ha- Hakimur in 1999, which you successfully run um, until 2020, which is amazing. So how did you get into beer brewing and why did you like it in the first place? So when I was at University uh, of Minnesota, um, I think similar to a lot of uh, people, I was unsure what I was going to do after college. Um, but I had been brewing beer uh, for quite a while uh, during that time. And I had a friend who lived in Denver and um, I went out and visited him quite a bit. And the, the Colorado brewing scene at that time was just taking off. It was, it was pretty energetic and dynamic and just wonderful. And, um, and so my love of beer just continued to flourish. And um, coinciding with that, graduating from college, um, in wondering what, you know, where I'm going to go in life, um, my friend told me that the, the friend that lived in Colorado said, my professor is starting a brewery, a microbrewery, and I know he needs help. And if you're interested, you could come out here and live on my couch and, and work there. And so I did that. And so that was sort of my um, initiation into the, the world of beer professionally. And um from there, I came back home and found out, home being Minneapolis, and I found out that there was a, a brew pub opening in St. Paul. And uh, back then, there was no internet, so or, or, you know I couldn't look and see who's opening it and what the address was so I could go down and apply. I literally uh, just got in my car and drove up, up and down the streets of St. Paul until I found some tanks in the window. And I went in and applied and, and applied again and applied again, eventually got the job. And so that, I think that was circa like 22 years old, give or take. And, uh, and then from that then on, I was, you know, brewing professionally. And that's how it all started. Mm, right. It sounds like kind of like a movement, right? So making something from scratch kind of craft movement back then. Yeah. The, I mean, the, you know, the alchemy of beer and the, the culture of beer, and the move, I mean, yeah, the, the four states that were just taking off in the brewing scene back then were California, Oregon, Washington, and Colorado. And, you know, being out there um, in Denver and just being a part of that, looking at all these breweries that were just doing such amazing things, it was, it was very energetic. It was a very exciting time. Mm, right. And I think that the spirit still continues throughout the country. But um, but you um, got into Japanese sake eventually. So how did you get into Japanese sake? What was how did you come across Japanese sake? 
Yeah. So, okay. So then just so shortly after my tenure at that brew pub in St. Paul, I went to Siebel Institute and got a brewing degree and then I opened Herkimer and um, that was 1999 and about two years into uh, the Herkimer being opened around the corner, uh, a Japanese restaurant opened called Fujia and Fujia had been around in, in the state for decades. Um, but it had changed location several times. And this time it changed uh, to our the Herkimer's neighborhood. And it was a wonderful place. Um, and we had several staff that was were working there as well, uh, working at the Herkimer and working at Fujia. And I literally knew nothing about Japanese cuisine. I knew nothing about Japanese sake. I was um, completely in the dark on on that those subject matters so I went over there and sat at the bar and I knew the bartender because he worked at a brew pub up the street called Rock Bottom and I said uh Jason just put some things in front of me and I'll tell you when to stop and uh I, I ended up tasting for the first time Japanese sake and I was pretty uh, blown away he poured me uh, Masumi Junmai Ginjo and I just thought, wow, what is going on here? And I, and again, I'd never even had um, Atsaki before. So this is my first introduction. And uh, I was pretty amazed. And so then it was just mm. sort of this quest of like, well, what is sake? I mean, I knew it was, I knew it was not distilled and I knew it was made of rice, um, but that's about all I knew at, the, at that moment. And then I sort of went on this quest to learn more. Um, and so in that process, you know, I thought, well, I'll just go to a, uh, you know, Japanese brew pub on the West Coast and, and hopefully get a tour and, you know, talk to a brewer or a sake maker. I didn't know what they were even called back then. And, uh, you know, looking on the Internet, I'm like, there's no sake brew pubs. I mean, that seems crazy. There's why, where, why not? And so that's that's how this whole thing got started. But uh, but, yeah, that was my first introduction. It was it was. Uh, it was quite a moment, mm. quite a moment. Right, and a perfect sake, Masumi Junmai Ginjo. <laughs> what a great start. So Yeah, oh, yeah, truly. Right, and then, uh, so you opened the Motoi, your own brewery and brew pub in 2008. And um, I know that, uh, like you said, there's not, not much going on, like not the brewery, but know that one of the biggest sake producers in Japan, Gekki opened its production facilities in California, I think it's 1989, and the much smaller mm. sake one, uh, which was a joint venture with uh, Momokawa Brewing in Japan, and mm. it opened its Kura in 1997. So uh, mm. back there was nothing going on almost. So, but were there any other craft sake breweries in the US, or you were the first? Well, you know, I, I don't know how to uh, define that, but it, we were certainly the smallest and we were certainly um, committed to using a, as many different rice varieties as we could get our hands on and milling rates. And that really uh, was a differentiation between what we were trying to do and what everybody else was doing at the time. Most people were using Calrose 60 uh, or 70 and we started out using every Japanese varietal that we could get our hands on that was grown in California, which consisted of uh, Hito and Sasanishiki and um, Koshiakari, um, 
Akita, Komachi. So yeah, so we were committed to this sort of um, how many different flavors can we, you know, make in our brewery and how many different milling rates can we use? It was just, uh, you know, the classic, what a brew pub should be all about. It should be as much variety as possible. And uh, that's, so if that, if that's sort of puts me in the craft category, I, I would say then, then, yeah, we were, we were certainly uh, the first to, to go down that road. Mm, interesting. Cause uh, the berries you mentioned, these are the premium table rice right for eating not for sake rice yes. but you really did because there's not much going on in terms of sake rice growing in the states back then i believe so you are the most kind of a forward-minded pioneering thing and then japanese will probably never have thought of making sake premium sake um with table rice but mm. uh, i think american producers have been really um, making them surprised, and even up to now. So, yeah, you definitely are one of the top um, pioneering mindset back then. So, but um, how did you study sake production? I know you you knew how to make beer, but how did you study specific way to make such a, you know, well-recognized sake now? Yeah, so the, in the beginning, the... Um, the first steps for me to try to understand sake brewing was to uh, read as much as I could, which the first um, place I started was John Gauntner's books, which is really uh, not about sake brewing, but more about the culture and the appreciation of sake. Um, but I managed to uh, get him on the phone and I said, you know, what do you, what can you in the classes that you teach, what do you teach? And is there a way for me to sort of figure out how to brew sake through what you teach? And he was very candid and he said, that's not, that's definitely not what I teach. Um, but nonetheless, I went over to Japan to study with John when he offered his uh, courses over there. He still does, just a little bit of a break right now due to COVID. But, um, and uh, the beauty of going over there was that we tour breweries and um, I think each time I went over there and studied um, with him, we went to, I think, three or four breweries each day in the last two days of a five-day um, course. And that was fundamental, that just being in a brewery and looking around and seeing what the actions of the people are and seeing, you know, a pump connected to a hose, connected to a tank, and, and, and sort of building this framework of understanding of just how the process is laid out um, that's really how it all started. And I went um, and studied with John. Uh, I so I took class one twice, not because I failed the first time, but I just wanted to do it again. And, uh, and I took his second course, um, which I think was a couple of years later when he introduced this, the, the second course, the professional course. And so that, that was the, that was building the framework. And then of course, um, downloading papers and, translating them into English and, um, and just anything that I could get my hands on uh, from a you know research um, point of view. And then I also visited a lot of breweries in the country, uh, the United States, uh, Sake One, um, and had a lot of discussions with them about how their process. Uh, and 
sort of formulated a way to do it. Um, a lot of mistakes and, uh, but yeah, it, it definitely all that background helps sort of pave the way to, to building the brewery that is, that is Moto E. Mm, right. So listeners who, who have not heard of John Gautner, John Gautner is really one of the key people um, to increase awareness of sake, not to mention uh, increase the number of super, super excellent sake uh, specialists all over the world. So yeah, it's, it, yeah, right. So, so John Gontner, G A U N T N E R, John Gontner. He, yeah, he, I heard he's offering online courses, or maybe in the U.S. Or, but he really is just amazing person himself as an individual too. So he came to the show uh, when we just started showing twenty fifteen. But yeah, I'm I'm a big mm. fan of his too. Um, Likewise. Yeah. So, but I'm curious though. What do you see and um, having beer brewing experience and then you started sake making is there anything related or kind of really beneficial or is anything surprising between the two differences or similarities yeah there i mean the the basics that are the same is you know you have um grain and you have water and you have hoses and pumps and you got to keep things extremely clean and you have yeast. I mean, so there's a lot of similarities in in sort of this you know uh, thousand foot view. Um, but when you get down to it, the 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 way that you convert starch into sugar is dramatically different. And the way that you ferment is different. And you know the the unique thing about sake is multiple parallel fermentation. And and so when I when I talk to a beer brewer, for instance, who doesn't know anything about sake, I say to them, imagine you mash in to your, your mash tun with grain and you do you use cold water and then you pitch your yeast. And they that's a very inquisitive look that I get every time I say that. But that is the closest, simplest way to say how they're different, really. Because um, you make all your sugar water up front with beer and then you ferment it downstream uh, and then with wasake, you're making sugar and fermenting at the same time in the same tank, and uh, it's just so it's it's dramatically different in that in that regard. Mm, right, and the magic, uh, the king co component is koji, right? So, mm -hmm. right, that's the yes. thing. Like uh, why uh, toji, like you, um, brewmaster, has to really work delicately with koji that's your partner could be an enemy at the same time so yeah, yeah right right yeah koji is just so critical and so and equally fascinating uh, at the same time and and uh, a, a lifelong study for sure mm, right it's like a judo kendo the way of everything is lifetime students so second making sounds like it's another way of spiritual martial mm. arts and something um, but how supportive are the Japanese sake breweries um, of your success in the U.S.? Because they could be potentially competitors, but when you visited them, or how are they help supportive to you? Uh, I think overall the support has um, been fantastic. I've been lucky enough to visit so many breweries and talk to so many brewers. I've been lucky enough to uh, work at breweries. And the, the, 
the wealth of knowledge that I've gained through that experience has just been fantastic. And um, I, I wouldn't want to speak for them as to why that they've been so generous, but I suspect that there's this understanding that, you know, sake is um, an amazing beverage and should be shared by everybody on the planet. And anyone who wants to be a steward of high quality sake um, should be, you know, helped and taught um, the ways of making high quality sake. And that's mm. the feeling I get. And uh, like I said, I've, I've been very lucky and received um, a lot of support over the years. Mm. Right. Do you have any specific boomers uh, that you're friends with or you call your sensei? Well, like I said, I've, I've been lucky enough to go to several breweries. And right now, um, the, or the last one I was at was at Skinawa in Iwate, um, where Hiroko, an amazing uh, brewer up there, um, had shared just unbelievable amount of information. And I was so lucky to learn the, the ways that they make koji. And that was the focus of why I was there. I was um, interested in the nuances of koji making um, and I was really interested in a, in a northern um, area brewery, which they are very, they're in Iwate, so they're very uh, north of Japan. Um, yeah, and she, she shared a ton of information. But prior to that, I was um, at Watanabe in Gifu. And same thing, Cody and, and company down there were extremely generous with everything that they shared with me. And uh, I learned so much. So, um, multiple people, if I would say, are, are mentors of mine. Mm, that's amazing. I, I think um, it's inspiring to them to talk to you as well because um, it's such a tradition-driven industry and then um, new generation is necessary to be pumped into the whole industry to stay mm. um, authentic as well as um, relevant. So... Yeah, I think um, I think it's mutual. <laughs> You're benefiting mm -hmm. to each other. So, Definitely. right. Okay, so we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into Blake's sake making philosophy. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm Chaba Periban, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 
818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese on Heritage Radio Network, or HRN. I'm your host, Akiko Teyama, and my guest today is Blake Richardson, who is the president and owner of Motoi in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So let's talk about Motoi. So what are the theme and or the philosophy of Motoi's sake? Uh, so the sake at Motoi, I would say, resembles, in a very general sense, sake of northern Japan. Um, we brew very cold. We rarely go over 10 degrees Celsius in the Maromi tank. Uh, we try to brew very for uh, a long period of time, which is to say at minimum 24 to 28 days. Um, and we go out as far as 40 days. Um, we use um, a handful of yeast, um, some uh, like uh, from Akita Prefecture, from uh, Akita Kono. Um, so the, the, the sort of softer, um, lighter on the palate sake is, is the driving force behind the idea of what we, of the brews that we make. Mm, right. Okay. So, um, so I, I'm sure you, um, you visited many breweries from north to south, but is that something that you really wanted to stay uh, with in terms of the style of sake, which is northern? Yeah, I, I think the, the brewery that has sort of influenced me the most in terms of uh, a style and a philosophy of brewing is Saya Shuzo. Uh, I'm enamored with that brewery and the philosophy of, of the toji there, um, the, the, the no stirring of the maromi, um, you know, everything is genshu. I mean, it's, it's sort of this very natural way of looking and letting the ingredients do what they do on their own with as little manipulation as possible. Mm. Um, that, that is, uh, I, I just find that absolutely fascinating and the sake is excellent. Um, mm. so what's, a, it, what's the name of the river again? Saya Shuzo and the brand is Yuki Nabosha. Oh, right, right. Okay. Right. Mm. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Right. Okay. So, um, well, so do you call your sake um, on top of it, the traditional creative or somewhere in between? Uh, definitely somewhere in between because we're, we're definitely trying to do, do things and think differently. Um, 
but uh, we, we follow the traditions. For, for instance, there, we still, we make Moto, we make, we use uh, Ko Ontoka, Yamahai, and uh, Kimoto. Um, I know some breweries will uh, skip that step. Um, that is absolutely imperative for us. We, we do not skip that step. Um, I'm not judging those who do or don't. It's just for us, that's, that's a part of, of, of important part for us to continue on mm. for example right and you uh, focus on nama um and pasteurized sake uh not anymore we we have nama but i'd say 90 percent of our production is is now pasteurized we definitely started that way we started by producing nama um, but probably 2000 18 give or take is when we made a major shift and started pasteurizing almost all of our sake and we do release nama like for instance right now we're releasing a lot of nama uh, but it's it's a rare it's more of a rarity than it is a commonplace at motuino mm, because you found a kind of terroir minneapolis without relying on one style or what happened in 2018 well, so when we started, we had a bottling license to be able to sell um, sake to go, but we never really used it because of a couple of reasons. One, we were we eventually had a hard time keeping up with production. Um, we got um, we were making enough sake to only supply the restaurant, uh, we, but we couldn't supply you know people who wanted to take it to go, for instance. Um, but then with a few key additions and some changing of the way we approach the brewing season, we then found ourselves having a proper supply to bottle. Um, but I was reluctant to put Nama in a bottle, um, you know, all the time. And I thought we, we really need to figure out how to uh, take care of our sake post-fermentation from a perspective of being in a bottle. And so that led us to um, investing in pasteurization and sterile filtration and, and all the things that, that really um, take care of sake uh, when it's put into a bottle. Mm, right. Okay. Um, so um, so basically, Japanese sake have main ingredients uh, rice, koji mold, uh, like we discussed, yeast, lactic acid, and water. So what's your, how do you call the terroir of Minneapolis? based on those five different ingredients. Is there any specific thing you find in your area? Uh, our sake is, um, is definitely softer. Our, we have uh, a soft water supply in Minneapolis mm. and it, it lends itself um, uh, to be a lighter sake on the palate for sure. Okay. And it's, yeah. So like, for instance, you know, we, we make Yamaha and Kimoto and, um, there to get that like sort of extreme uh, umami is is difficult for us to do just because of our water supply, um, but uh, you know we still do it and it, I think it turns out great. But uh, it's but it's very it's subdued. Our, our sake is very um, it's not uh, it's just lighter lighter on the palate, for instance. Mm, right. Okay, so or maybe you can just talk about uh, some examples of your sake uh, that represent mm. your style. So I was looking at your website, and uh, so for example, you have Miyoko, and uh, the description of which is ripe melon 
and mushroom flavors give way to earthy undertones and savory aromas. So where do you think the unique flavors come from? Oh, for that sake, um, it is definitely the combination of the yeast and the, the koji can that we use uh, on that sake and the, and the rice as well. Uh, so that's Yamada Nishiki from, from uh, Arkansas. Um, it's number seven. And uh, we, that, is a, that is actually a namazake. And um, we use a special uh, namazake koji kin for that, for that particular sake. Mm. And is this a, a oh, sorry, is it Junmai Ginjo? Or mm -hmm. Okay. It's Junmai. No, so the, I think it's 70% uh, 70 no rate, say my boy, mm. on that sake. Right, meaning 70% remaining, 30% milled down. So, yeah. okay, it sounds delicious. Um, well, so what about another dalliance, a good name? Mm. It's described mm. as orange blossom and rose petal aroma, apricot and pear on the palate. So, mm. yeah, how, how do you make it and uh, where do you think uh, this made it so delicious? So uh, that sake is much higher mill rate, 50% um, for the koji and 55% uh, for the kakamai. And we um, use a yeast uh, 21 from Akitokono uh, and a different koji kin, which is uh, for uh, daiginjo brewing, ginjo daiginjo brewing. Uh, and really that, I think that sake is an interplay between that yeast and that koji kin and that milling rate. Um, it just uh, speaks really well to the palate and those wonderful flavors come out with that, with a very long fermentation. Mm. Uh, that sake usually is 35 to 38 days long in fermentation. Oh, wow. So, right. So the Miyoko and another dalliance both are very fruity, sounds like. So that comes from slow fermentation and the soft water? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Mm. Okay. And the, and the chosen yeast, yeah. Right. So, and how about Junmai, Kimoto, Daiginjo? So you mentioned Kimoto earlier. So listeners, Kimoto is just the most ancient, one of the most ancient styles of sake um, mm. making style. So because you try to get the lactic acid from the air rather than inoculating um, the lactic acid with some added uh, commercial um, products. So so how, um, why did you decide to do this, make this uh, label in terms of sake and uh, what's the idea behind it and how does it taste like? So Kimoto is, I think, very fascinating in the sense that it's, it is difficult to make and it is ancient, like you say. Um, it is uh, it is a style of sake uh, moto that um, has a very unique flavor, and I think the interplay with that um, such an old school way of making a moto with which with a modern grade of sake um, uh, such as daikinjo is a really interesting interplay. Uh, so yeah, so we make the dikimoto, and we this particular um, batch uh, we always put on the roof of Motoi for 14 days with the lid open in order to try to capture any anything in Minnesota 
that will fall into the tank and propagate it up. Um, <laughs> so we literally have a, like a little space heater out there to control, you know, bring the temperature up. And we always do this in March. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, so it's, it's sort of an interesting experiment that we do every year. Um, again, trying to catch something that's native to Minnesota that'll land in that that moto and prop it up, um, and sort of you know keep the flavor sort of local, if you will. But um, uh, and then, like I said, the interplay of that sort of uh, high acidity umami kimoto with a very low milling. This milling rate is forty percent, um, and trying to juxtapose those two sort of very different flavors together in one sake is is the the whole idea behind that mm, right and uh, by the way this junmai kimoto daiginjo uh, description is rich layered flavors of nectar and caramel with dry bold finish sounds like you can mm. pair this with something some other kind of food so yeah I, mm. I really wish i could go to your brupa because your sake is basically only available at your brupa right or do you sell retail as well? No, unfortunately, we do not sell uh, retail. We only sell at the brew pub. Minnesota mm. laws prohibit us from distribution at, at present. Yes. Huh. Is there any plan like that? Unless the regulation changes, you cannot distribute outside your brew pub? That's okay. correct. Yeah. You mm. can only buy this motuisake at our restaurant, and you can buy a bottle to go, but you can, we cannot distribute at present. Mm, because we have a brew pub? Yeah, so Minnesota brew pubs law, laws do not allow uh, the distribution of the product outside the, the four walls other than oh. a retail customer oh. taking it to go. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm, something has to happen. Maybe I should write to you or a senator or something. <laughs> um, Please do. Okay. Uh, no, we're, we're working on other options and have been for years. And, you know, the possibility of us um, expanding or uh, adding a different location or, you know, or let through legislation, uh, we're, we're definitely working on it. It's not like uh, we're just going to let it be. We're, we're, we're working on ways to, to make that change. Mm, okay. So good luck and keep me posted. So, yeah, and then uh, you also run a rice milling company called Minnesota Rice and Milling, which you founded in 2012. So the website says quality rice milling for sake breweries, home brewers, and wholesale suppliers, and rice varieties, Yamada Nishiki, Kosihikari, and Kanlos. So why did you start a Japanese sake rice milling company? Well, the landscape of, of getting varieties and different milling rates when we opened was so difficult uh, and we were lucky enough to find a mill and buy it and it, it to me it just made sense to try to offer um, all the things that I had desired when we opened in 2008 which was this which is to say I wanted to buy any rice and mill it to any uh, milling rate. And that was just unheard of at that time in this country. And, and then and then on top of that, in any volume, you know, can I just get one pallet of this particular rice at this particular milling rate? And that was not a, uh, an easy thing to do back when we, we opened. 
and I thought, well, if this if this industry is going to take off, it's not be, it's not going to be um, because of, of a whole bunch of new large breweries opening. It's going to be a bunch of small breweries that open across the country, and they're going to say the same or think the same thing that I thought when we opened. Wouldn't it be nice if we had this rice at this milling rate uh, in this amount? And uh, so it just made sense to try to answer that problem or, you know, provide that for future breweries that we're going to open. Um, and certainly Moto we benefited from it just because, you know, again, we, we wanted to be uh, known for our varieties and have different milling rates and have different rice varieties. So. Mm. Yeah, wow. So I'm sure a lot of psychobreweries in this country worshiping you because you really felt the need for them. So, um, and how does it work? So do you buy rice from farms and you mill it to by your bio specified milling rate and the quantity or how, how what's the business model here? So right now we work with Isbel Farms in Arkansas mm. and we buy the rice from them and we mill it to order. Uh, so if a brewery says, hey, I would like to get this rice, uh, Yamada Nishiki or Omachi, uh, mill to 55%, then we will in turn mill it for them in the amount that they want. Uh, but we, like I say, we mill to order. We don't do anything ahead of time. Um, it just depends on what the brewery wants and what size they want. Mm. Yeah, so who are and how many are your clients? Uh, well, we mill for quite a few different breweries. Um, we just shipped some rice to uh, Farthest Star and Nami in Mexico, mm. uh, The Void, uh, Proper Sake, uh, quite a few, uh, Arizona Sake, Colorado Sake. A lot of different breweries across the country mm. are using using our, the rice that we mill for them. Wow. So do you think you are the only uh, sake rice milling company in North America? No, there's there's another one in California that's uh, also milling for a variety of brewers across the country. Right. Oh, still only <laughs> very limited. So, yeah, I'm glad you yeah. started the business. You're very forward-minded. That was 10 years ago already. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to believe. Ten years mm. ago, wow. <laughs> right, and actually, Nami, uh, Matthew Gelpion came on episode 250, and also at Christian Markets Bell, of Isabel Farm came on episode 244, and yeah, they are really um, important, right? So Isabel Farms is uh, just a uh, mm -hmm. pioneering uh, sacrifice people, and just good farmers uh, yeah. generations. So, yeah, it's just yes. amazing that how they're open-minded, forward-minded, and they have great stories. So, yeah, I'm so glad you really are uh, along with them, just inspiring the whole sake industry in North America. So congratulations. Thank you. And I concur with your assessment on Isabel Farms. They're, they're wonderful people, wonderful farmers, and they, they have fantastic rice. It really it's it's a game changer for sure. Mm, right. And I got lucky to uh, taste Nami sake uh, 
recently and they're they're amazing. So there's like actually before during before the show I couldn't get a chance to taste it and I finally got a chance because they kindly sent me and wow, it's happening. North America um and Mexico, the sake is good. Something's good happening. So I was very impressed. So you're part of the whole team. <laughs> mm -hmm. I agree. I've had their sake, it's wonderful, really good stuff. Right. Okay, so you really are not just you're making your own sake, inspiring the whole production side. You are really a kind of foundational part of this whole sake industry outside Japan. So, um, so how do you see the change in demand for your sake rice since you started the company ten years ago? Oh, it's definitely gone up. Uh, we, you know, we didn't mill that often in the in the early years. Um, and now we are milling around the clock. It seems like uh, it's uh, it's 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 dramatically different. the The production has stepped up, and obviously the amount of breweries is, is in dramatically increased too over the years. And, mm. uh, so it's it's definitely a lot more than it used to be. Right. So do you tend to um, sell more Yamada Nishiki, which is a super premium uh, sake rice, or some table rice? Um, Koshikari Kaugos, which also are premium table rice, and it seems to be very suitable making sake in this country. So which one is the most popular? We definitely mill mostly Yamada Nishiki. That's, that's the one variety that is definitely goes out the door the most. Mm, right, because it's a rare supply too, and it's much cheaper than buying Yamana Ishiki from, from Japan and shipping all the way, and it's not as fresh probably, it uh, ships all the way from Japan, so. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, and uh, so um, there are about 20 sake breweries in the U.S., and the number seems to keep increasing, so what do you think is the future of Japanese sake made outside Japan as Brewer yourself and also sake milling um, company owner. Well, I think the amount of breweries are going to increase for sure. Uh, it, it's it, it's the 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 beverage, the education of of people of sake drinkers is continuing to go up. People are discovering it and liking it. I mean, I see it every day at Moto E. Um, People are amazed with the beverage, how it pairs with food, uh, to the traditions of it. Um, it it's, it's on a trajectory up for sure. It's just a matter of how quick it happens, but uh, it's inevitable that there will be a uh, sake brewery in every state, if not you know, two or three. Um, you know, sake is just an amazing beverage, and if once you people... Uh, try it and and pair it and enjoy, they just they always enjoy it it's a, it's an amazing transformation of how you approach um the consumption of uh of alcohol versus beer versus wine um you know the interesting thing about sake um which is sort of uh you know there was no this country before it's sort of changed to craft brewing um, as the as as an option versus macro brewing, if you will, um, you knew what both were, and same with wine. When the wine industry sort of took off in California, um, you, 
you you had an idea of what um, you know one high quality wine was was versus sort of you know the big jug wine, uh, but that's very different with sake because sake wasn't there wasn't like an undertone of sake drinking in America um, at a at a mass at a mass volume. And so sake just kind of coming into this picture alone without this you know, huge history uh, behind it. So in some senses, I think it's going to take a lot longer uh, for sake to take off than like the craft brewing industry did or the wine industry did. Uh, but at the same time, there's so many more avenues to education um, with the internet and exploring um, online what sake is and uh, I, so I, I think it, it'll it just it'll take a little bit longer, but it, it will inevitably happen. It just mm. matter how right. long it will take. So how do you see it at your brew pub? Uh, clients, your your diners, guests tend to be more passionate about sake than when you open it, or do you see any customer preference changed? Oh yeah, it's changed dramatically. Um, the I mean, the one thing I talk about um, when I is when customers come in and they ask for a brand of sake, or they ask for a style or a grade of sake. That's a pretty amazing transformation for just someone coming in and said, "I, you know, I hear you make sake. Can I try something?" As opposed to they ask for it by brand, or they say, "Do you have a Junmai Ginjo?" And <laughs> Watching that happen over the years, you you know that it's you know the it, the the sake bug is taking. You know people are uh, becoming a part of of the industry in a in a different, more meaningful way. Mm, right. Perhaps they started to go to more Japanese restaurants or traveled or the internet information increased those things. Maybe they were triggering that trend, but it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Right, it sounds like a, a quick change over since you started the brewery. Yeah, so uh, you know another story I tell is, which I think is really poignant to this this discussion is when I was uh, putting the plan together for Moto E, I went around Minneapolis and I talked to a lot of bartenders and a lot of owners of restaurants that carried sake, and what I discovered was is that their sake sales were way higher. Uh, than what was being sold at the liquor stores in the same neighborhoods. In other words, people were choosing to drink high-end sake, not hot sake, but Junmai Ginjo, Junmai Dai Ginjo. And uh, they were choosing to drink it in lo- in places where it, it costs more. It costs more to drink uh, at a restaurant than it does to go to the liquor store and take a bottle home. And that ha- I found that over and over again in the research that I was doing. And what it eventually what I came to understand is that people want to drink sake, but they just want someone to explain to them what it is as they're drinking it. And that's what a, that's fundamentally what a restaurant should be able to offer you with the glass of sake, the, the bartender, the servers, they should be able to say, you know, this is Jumai Ginjo, it's, we use the, it's made with this rice, uh, it has this profile. And so I think that that, I don't think that anything's changed from that research that I did in 2007, 2008. I think people still want to discover sake. They still want to understand it in a way that's meaningful. Um, And the more this industry can do that, the faster this industry will grow. And I think, and you already, you know, you see that, you see that with people like John Gauntner educating people, how many people go to his class and 
and uh, you know so many other educators out there people still show up and they want to be educated on on this beverage and and so I, that's why i think for sure this will take off but there is there's just nothing there was um like like again to go back to beer and wine there wasn't a fundamental understanding of what the beverage was prior um to entering into the sake world for for the the common you know, just the everyday person who wants to try something different. They don't have that palate of, well, I used to drink this sort of low-end sake, now I've graduated to high-end sake. That just doesn't exist. So just to, to come full circle, the more education about the beverage, the better the sake industry will do. Mm, right. And also each brewery has lots of stories to tell and some goes back to like 500 years of history like it's easy to understand why it tastes so differently it's not manufactured in big factory it's just made by hand so um yeah it's just a storyteller we need more and not just technical yeah i i absolutely agree with that and i obviously i didn't mention that but you're you're absolutely right because that's that's that speaks to the, you know, just the, the, the humanity of sake, like the people who work in the, in the breweries and their heritage and their, in their family story and the community story and the food that surrounds the town that makes this sake and how that pairs. Uh, I mean, that's something, uh, Michael Tremblay's course, Sake Scholar, I don't know if you've heard of that, that course he teaches, but that is, that's a fundamental piece of, of his education is talking about you know, this sake, this community, this food uh, in this location. And that's how this the, uh, this sake grew to be, you know, paired with all the culture and all the food that surrounds it. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. There's so many wonderful pieces uh, to the culture of sake itself. Mm, right. Well, luckily, Michael is joining us next week. So <laughs> on the show. Oh, awesome. Yeah, he's got a new book, so we're going to discuss that too. And uh, I mean, speaking of storytelling, like uh, on episode 254, uh, Genki Ito of Tipsy Sake, uh, he has an online sake um, distributing company that's Mm. directly sold to consumers, and he really pays attention to storytelling, and he has booklet and all those things. So, I mean, little things, these things should be more available, not just the internet, but also... I mean, of course, everyone wants to go to Japan and visit sake breweries, which is not easy, especially now. So, yeah, hopefully um, those um, educational aspects are going to be more and more available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, there's so many things that Japanese traditional breweries can share, and that's what they mm-hmm. want, too. So, And For I sure. think you are a big bridge <laughs> between the two cultures. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, so what are your plans and dreams? Oh, the in the the short term, it's to uh, continue to grow Motoe, continue to improve. Um, we we brew only in the winter. We reflect in the summer, and we try to make sure that we pick two areas that we can improve on every year with our sake. Um, and you know, obviously, we want to grow uh, the brewery to a, a point where we can start di- uh, distributing our sake, so other people can enjoy it outside of our immediate area. 
and you know we touched on that already but that's a that's a big focus for us for sure right. um, and then the education like we just talked about is key and being able to share uh, this wonderful beverage with uh, as many people as possible mm, right okay so uh well maybe i should really write to your senator <laughs> <Guess so>. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so okay and uh so by the way um if uh, if you want to drink your sake as uh, soon as possible without waiting for the, the regulation change, uh, do you offer a tour of your brewery when, if we go visit your brewery? Yes, absolutely. Just e e email us on the website and reach out. Let us know you're coming. We'll absolutely let you come in and give you a tour. Actually, we're giving a ton of tours yesterday with the conference in town. It was so much fun. So many people coming through and uh, it's really wonderful to connect with people and just, you know, their, their ears and their eyes perk up when they start understanding the process. It's a, it's a very rewarding experience for hopefully them. And it certainly is for us when we get to share the knowledge of, of brewing. Mm, awesome. Okay. So where can we find updates online and on social media? Uh, so our website is moto-i.com. We are at M-O-T-O, uh, M-O-T-O-I, Sake, S-A-K-E, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, that's, yeah, that's how you can you can track us. Right, wonderful. So thank you so much for joining us today, Blake. I'm sure you're super busy, especially just ending the brewing season as well. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Right, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at Japanese at the Heritage or Akikuatema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at Heritage as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Armin Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Banyeats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.